Today we are resuming our series on Joshua. But before that, let's do a quick recap of the previous chapters. In chapter 20, we learned how God commanded His people to appoint cities of refuge. Cities meant to be a shield and a protection for those who killed the person without intent, that he might first be given a hearing before the congregation, before his fate would be decided. It was an exemplifying factor. It was a revelation of the justice and mercy of God. In chapter 21, the last chapter, we learned that cities were given to the priests, the Levites. Out of the, own, the tribe's own land, they allotted spaces for the priests to, to dwell with them. And all of these events occurred as God's people were settling into the land that God had promised. They were receiving their inheritance and they were doing all the necessary arrangements before they actually settled in. So for today, in Joshua 22, we will dive into a scene and open our Bibles there. I invite you to join me. In Joshua 22, we will see three things as we read. First, we will see the scenario. It was a setup. It was creating a picture of what was going on. And then there was conflict, and then there was the resolution. Let's start reading and allow the Word of the Lord to capture our imagination as we jump back into his story. Let's read this together. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And he said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. You see, as we begin 22, we see that the Israelites were slowly settling into their own land. And in this chapter, we see Joshua speaking to three specific tribes, or maybe two and a half. It was the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And in these initial verses, this is what we can conclude. The Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have already received their inheritance of land. It's actually in back in chapter 13. They had received it early, but they continually kept the Lord's command. What Moses commanded, what Joshua commanded, they were faithful to keep. And besides that, they did not neglect their brothers who were still trying to obtain their portion of the land later than them. They fought with them. They fought beside them. They fought with and for them so that their brothers can also settle in before they themselves settled in. So they helped their brothers to this day attain the rest that the Lord had promised them. So Joshua was blessed. Joshua blessed them, thanked them for what they did, and sent them home to their own land. But this was significant because as you see here on the slide, this was the map of the promised land. 
On the left, you will see on the greener side of the picture, there are nine tribes on the left of the Jordan, the Jordan River being the blue thing that divides the middle. And on the right side, you will see three names, Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben. These were the people, these were the tribes that Joshua was speaking to on this first half of chapter 22. He was sending them home across the river, the three of them. The eastern tribes had began to settle in because they were helped by Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh and their tribes. So what separated these two were the Jordan River in between them. They had to cross before they could get to their own land. This would be significant for our story and conflict later on. Let's read on. Before Joshua sent them home, he gave them a final charge. And let's read this in verse 5 to 6. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tent. Observe God's commands. Love God. Walk in his ways. Keep his commands. Cling to him. Serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. It was Joshua's parting words to these three tribes. So the eastern tribes which is the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, they were people who have kept the Lord's command from Moses' time to today. They have fought with and for their brothers, and they helped their brothers settle down and gain rest and land before they went home. This shows us that these three tribes, the eastern tribes as they were called now, were a people who loved God and were loyal to him. They did not forsake their brothers even though they could have just went home. They already had their land, but they kept God's command. They kept their duties and fulfilled their obligations to their brothers. So Joshua blessed them. Go home, go across the river and settle down into your land now. You have done well. So the scenario shows us that all is going well so far. It was like a fairy tale. After a long journey of, of wilderness travel, God's people were settling into their lands, their own lands. Yung may titulo, yung pangalan nila nakalagay dun. And a noble group of eastern tribes, the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, were the focus. They were traveling across the river after doing their job. But as we continue our reading, we will soon see that being a new nation that is Israel, settling into a new land that is the promised land, all while trying to apply and observe and keep and love and serve and cling to God's commands, is not all fairy tale roses. Because they're new. They're learning to live life anew with new rules, new people, new land, new places, new faces. So we will read on to see the conflict that happened after they began to settle down. The second part of Joshua 22 introduces us to the conflict as we pick up the story in verse 
10. Let's read this together. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard of it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. What happened? They had just gone home. The tribes of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had just crossed the river. But suddenly, there was news. There was news of them building a huge, huge altar. And immediately, the narrator or the author shifts our attention to the perspective of the nine tribes here named as the people of Israel because they were the majority. The nine tribes are acting to this news. They got wind of it. They heard of it that their brothers had begun to build an altar of huge size. So the author shows us the reaction of the nine tribes. The whole assembly, lahat sila nagtipon-tipon. And then they gathered to make war against their three tribe brothers. Let's step back at this point before we proceed. I want us to think of people who've gone through battles with us. Maybe financial battles, maybe family struggles, maybe history of growing up together and fighting through life together. People who've been through it all with us. They've walked with you. They've showed you their loyalty to you. They've served you selflessly. They've been influential in impacting the way you see life and the way you've established yourself to this day with who you are. Think of people, think of names, think of faces in your life. Who would that be? Think of that person and then imagine, imagine a day when sometime in your life you began to drift apart, maybe physically, Maybe relationally, maybe because of circumstance. You both have different families now. You live in different cities. You have different workplace. Maybe something happened that drifted you apart. And then one day, you hear of news about that person and that face. You hear of shocking news. Something you wouldn't believe that they could do. Something scandalous. How would you react? Would you cry? Would you go straight to your phone, check on their social media accounts to see what has has he been up to? Is this news true? Are there any evidence of this, um, his life leading up to this this news that that, that has, has apparently happened? What would you do? Would you be disappointed? Would you confront him? Would you, would you go straight to his home? What would you do? This loyal brother, this loyal friend, and hearing news of this. 
your answers to that question would determine how you would perceive the next part of our passage, the nine tribes' response. In orange, this is how they reacted when they found out that people who influenced them, people who grew up with them, people who went through life with them, and they received devastating news about these people, shocking news about these people. It says here that when they heard of this news, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against their brothers. You see, the Western tribes did not check the social media accounts of their brothers. They did not cry. They did not gossip. They immediately gathered together to make war. What? Why? 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 Bakit? As we read God's word, it's, it's allowable that we ask these questions. Why? Why, why war a God? When your brothers shock you when they commit something scandalous, war, annihilation, take up swords, guns, weapons, why? We see an actual explanation in Deuteronomy chapter 13. This is the basis of their reaction. It says here, if you hear in one of your cities that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction, all who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. Why? This is the answer to the question, why? It was based on the Lord's commandments, the Lord's law spoken through Moses in Deuteronomy 13. The western tribes, the nine tribes on the left of the Jordan, were simply following what the Lord had instructed. If you hear of them turning away from me, destroy them completely. And they heard that. They heard that apparently, building an altar, their brothers were turning away from God. This was something Heinous. This was apostasy. They, this was rebellion against God because they were commanded not to worship any other gods nor worship any other place, but only the tabernacle that was with them. So this was scandalous. So immediately, you would expect that these nine tribes had felt an urgency to take action, to, to, to rush into movement. And let's read about the reaction in the next few verses. Let's pick up from verse 13. 
Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of this sin at Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel." Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us, us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. At this point, the Western tribes immediately, urgently, quickly confronted the Eastern tribes, reminding them that their breach of faith and their rebellion and their turning against God will have consequences, not just for them, but for the whole community, for the whole congregation. In fact, they enumerated instances in the past that they were still suffering from because of their sin. There apparently was a plague after a sin at Peor that they still are suffering from. Hindi pa sila malinis from the plague. And then they also mentioned the sin of Achan, in which it was not just Achan who died, the, commit, the, the one who committed the sin, but his whole clan had to be put to death because of one person's sin. So they immediately confronted the three tribes with that in mind that the, even though it's the three tribes that committed this rebellious act, the rest of the tribes will suffer the consequences. They were begging them, What are you doing? Don't you remember? So initially, maybe we would think that the Western tribes were overreacting, the nine tribes were overreacting. But as we read on, as we discover, the Western tribes were the ones who were trying to uphold the holiness of the nation, the devotion of the people of Israel to the commandments of God that they had just been charged with. Remember, observe all, serve, cling to Him, stick with Him, Love him with all your heart and with all your soul. And then ngayon, you're building an altar. Guys, guys, ano na? So we reach the point of the narrative that brings us to a tension point, ang intense. Let's have a recap of what just happened. So the conflict was caused by this. Upon hearing of the eastern tribes, the three that crossed the river, putting up a huge altar, the western tribes, the, the nine tribes on the left, wanted to uphold the purity of their nation. They were worried that the Lord would be angry again. They wanted to keep each other accountable to God and His commands. So immediately, they took action and gathered to make war to correct and rectify what has been committed by their brothers. So in Instead of thinking that they were overreacting, we can see now that the Western tribes really had pure and good intent, quickly acting on purging the sin that was among them. However, 
However, if we take a look slower, read slower, we could break down the process of this whole thing, confrontation and conflict, into a table such as this. In the Western tribes' desire to uphold the purity of their nation, to keep their brothers accountable to God and His promises, this is what they heard. They heard that their brothers from the Eastern tribes built an imposing altar by the Jordan. And immediately, immediately, they quickly concluded that their brothers had committed a breach of faith against the God of Israel. Their brothers have turned away from following the Lord. Their brothers have rebelled against the Lord. There was immediacy. There was quickness. There was brisk decision-making and quick reactivity. Let's take a step back. How often have we as a church been caught in this same situation or conflict? We hear, we hear of certain things. Maybe our friends talking to us about their marital affairs, talking to us about their spouse, their husbands, their wives, or maybe their kids and their parent struggles. How about troubles with the in-laws? Troubles with your business and your employees, your partners? And how quickly have we tried to conclude an observation, an interpretation, in order to come up with a swift course of action that will rectify what seems out of order? We do this frequently, even in the church, even among spiritual brothers and sisters and the conflict that happened, the differences, the frictions that happened. We quickly jumped to conclusions with pure intent of wanting to rectify what seems bent, to straighten what seems crooked immediately. Yes, you see, the Lord does ask us to quickly purge the evil among us to not associate with such a sinner, to cleanse our communities of offenses, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So we are encouraged to do that. However, there is a proper process to this purging. There is a proper process to this confrontation. And we might have missed it as we read the Lord's Law in Deuteronomy 13 a while ago. Let me highlight it now in orange. But let me read the whole thing again. If you hear in one of your cities that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, pay attention to this orange part, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently and behold if if it be true and if it be certain that such an abomination has been done among you then you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword devoting it to destruction all who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword in the English Standard Version, it was translated as three verbs, inquire, make search, and ask diligently. In the NIV, it was inquire, 
Probe, investigate. In the New Living Translation, it was stated simply as, you should examine the facts carefully. Why did Deuteronomy have to stretch out this process into three verbs? And there was very descriptive words in there. There was diligence. There was searching. There was investigation. There was inquiry. There was examination. There was carefulness. You see, the whole process of God was not brisk or quick or hasty. This purging, this confrontation required discernment, wisdom, investigation, proper due process before it can be acted upon wisely and correctly. So what would this have looked like in the situation of Joshua 22 for this altar conflict? From what they heard, after they heard that their brothers from the eastern tribes built an imposing altar, there should have been space and time for discernment with the help of the Spirit to inquire, to search, to investigate, to ask diligently, to examine the facts carefully before they concluded the motives of their brothers. And as I review this passage, I was reminded of another passage in James, some of which might have been already gasgas or familiar with us. It's James 1 verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So the last line down below is my interpretation. We produce unrighteousness when we are quick to hear, quick to speak, and quick to react. You see, like the eastern tribes, we are trying our best to obey God's law and trying to uphold it, trying to keep our people pure. But you see, James is telling us that if we are too quick to conclude, too quick to jump to conclusions, too quick to assume, we trust in ourselves more than we trust in the facts, we trust in the quickness more than in the deliberation, then what we achieve, what we produce, is a reactivity rather than a righteousness. Instead, it emphasizes, yes, you must be quick to hear, you must be very observant, you must be very perceptive, but slow to conclude, slow to react, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Interestingly, as I was reflecting on this passage, sometimes we apply this in terms of simply speaking. It's simply applied as, I will just say it later because it says in the Bible, slow to speak. So I'll say it tomorrow. Or I'll say it after two minutes, after we have coffee, or after he's not so angry, I'll say it later. So we just delay it using time. But you see, as I continue to reflect on this passage, being slow to speak is not time. It's not just time. 
It's not just delaying the words. It means you're creating a space in between hearing and speaking. You're creating a space between hearing and concluding. You're creating a space between hearing and assuming. And that space is used for proper investigation, proper diligence, proper discernment, proper examination, proper exploration. Totoo ba? Tama ba yung narinig ko? Is it really true? Or is it something that might have been passed on and misconstrued? Before I speak, before I conclude in my mind, before I react with confrontation, and what I confront with them might even change. In the case of the Western tribes, what should they have done after they heard of the building of a big imposing altar? What would have changed in their conclusions if they first inquired and asked diligently? Oh, brothers, what was your reason behind this behavior? What was your intent or what was your motive? What was your goal? Why did you build an altar? What would have changed, do you think, in their conclusions? Would their conclusions be still the same? It was a breach of faith, it was a turning away, it was a rebellion? What would have changed? And the passage after, after the confrontation, actually shows us the answers or the responses of the Western tribes to this accusation and this confrontation. In verse 21 to 23, it says, Then the people of Reuben, the people of God, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the Mighty One, God the Lord. The Mighty One, God the Lord. He knows. And let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, May the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of God. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the Lord, of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us 
that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. If the Western tribe had taken time to ask diligently, to investigate thoroughly, to examine the facts carefully, they would have found out before conclusion, before confrontation, that the intent of their brothers across the river was not to rebel against God or to turn away from Him. Instead, they would have found out that their brothers merely wanted to put up an altar as a sign, physical sign of witness for the future generations that they are serving the same God as they are making a copy of the same altar in order to show the unity that they have in spirit. They are united as a people before they lived across the river. They had and belonged to the same God. But in this case, it was fortunate. It was a blessing for the tribes to discover that both of them had still been loyal to God. They were not engaged in loyalty or rebellion. In, in, they were not engaged in idolatry, rather, or rebellion. They were acting out of pure intent. They wanted their next generations to not have conflict and war and disownment. Instead, they wanted to have unity and harmony even for their children. And from this passage, it's helpful for us to learn certain tendencies as a people also in handling certain conflicts or differences of assumptions, conclusions among us. You see, even as God's people, we have different responses to conflict. And it's usually one or two extreme spectrums. It's either you avoid conflict or you confront conflict head on. So as you look back on the conflicts you've faced maybe with your family before as you were growing up or now with your spouse or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your in-laws, you usually have a default. You either avoid or confront Early on in my relationship with my wife, this is what I had to discover. I did not know what my default was until I had been exposed to examine the way I handle conflict. You see, I realized early on that the way I handled conflict was more towards confrontation. Not because I wanted to attack, but because I wanted to clarify things. I wanted to process everything. I wanted to talk about everything and to put things on the table clearly. On the other hand, my girlfriend back then, which is now my wife, grew up with a different default. Their family were, was used to allowing the things or the emotions to die down before they engaged in discussion. You see, neither of these approaches are wrong, but the difference of approach sometimes hinders proper communication. And allow me to say that in the Filipino-Chinese culture, we tend to veer towards the avoidance of conflict and confrontation. We'd rather not rock the boat. Even as a Filipino-Chinese church, we bring this in. We would rather keep it hush-hush 
rather than confront people of certain things we've been hearing about them, over certain news or certain hearsays about their behaviors. We'd rather mind our own business. But you see, with this culture of conflict, it also has its detrimental effects. In a culture of avoidance of confrontation, of hard conversations, there is also an inability to keep each other accountable. Because you don't know. You see an altar across the river, but you don't have any skill, confidence, or even desire to inquire, to investigate, to examine the facts or to gather facts about why there is an altar across the river in your neighbor's place. You simply allow them. But what if in that instance, it was truly an act of rebellion? It was truly an act of sin in your neighbor's part. But then because you are stuck in your default of conflict avoidance or confrontation avoidance, we fail to do what the Western tribes were trying to do with the best of intents, which was to keep the purity of our people as God's people, to be loyal in keeping a command to be loyal in service to God wholeheartedly with all of their hearts, with all of their souls, with all of their land. There is a lack of accountability in a culture of avoidance. There is a lack of understanding. We build up faulty conclusions and assumptions about each other. Uh, probably, probably it's just an altar of witness. Probably. Siguro naman. Kilala ko naman sila. I know them. They, they won't. And then sin festers, doubts fester. And then it creates cultures of gossip. Look at the slide. It creates false assumptions and then secret judgments of the other. Even in the church, huh? even among God's people, Christians, we conclude things from hearsay. You hear that this family is going through this. You hear that this person is like this to his wife. And then you say, ah, ganyan pala siyang tao. So you jump to conclusions from hearsay. Why? Because you don't examine the facts. You don't confront lovingly. Bro, why did you do this? So there is a non-confrontational root happening. There is a root of unhappiness. There is a root of awkwardness because you know things that he doesn't know you know. So now when you're talking to him, you're kind of holding back. You can't be truly intimate or real with each other because you know the dark secrets and you don't have any muscle or ability to confront him about it. So the intimacy of friendship, there is a barrier. There is a Jordan River now that disrupts communication, that disrupts unity and harmony. And on the opposite end, maybe there are, of course, there are exceptions to this Filipino-Chinese culture wherein you're Filipino-Chinese, but you're very confrontational, which is kind of like me. I've experienced the wrong and detrimental effects of immediate confrontation, jumping to conclusions, and hasty um, reactions. There is unrighteous anger. Minsan galit na galit ka na, wala pala. Sugod na sugod ka na, wala pa naman problema. And then there's venting. You wanted to vent your emotions because you're upset because you've concluded something from hearsay about that person who offended you or who offended God, maybe. Baka maganda intention mo. But when you approached him, nilalabas mo lang yung galit mo pero wala naman para silang kasalanan. So it's very selfish. 
The confrontation was to alleviate your offense or your hurt, but it wasn't loving to that person. A confrontation that is fruitless and more damaging. So there's offense. There's blaming and confrontation without allowing the person to state the facts, to allow him due process, to explain his behavior. Bro, why is there an altar on your shore? You see, church, yes, we have to keep each other accountable, but how we do it matters. How we do it matters. There are times when things truly have to be clarified for us to keep each other holy unto God. But there are times when confrontation must be delayed, slower to speak, slower to anger, quick to hear. But there's a space for discernment. There's a space for investigation. There's a space for spiritual leading, allowing the Spirit, Lord, how should I bring this up? When should I bring this up? Should I bring this up? Do we have that gap in between hearing and concluding? In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 7 to 18, I think it's a very wise verse that's packed with wisdom. It says here, You shall not hate your brother in your heart because of what you hear about him. But instead, you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Because you hear something in your heart, you're concluding something about him, and then you incur sin because why? You are harboring anger, disappointment, bitterness, unforgiveness in your heart for your brother. So now, an offense creates an offense inside but nothing gets healed because we avoid it. Leviticus teaches us, reason frankly. Bro, why? Bro, na-offend ako. Bro, sinadyak mo ba yun? Ano, anong, anong meaning mo nung sinabi mo yun? Do we have skill? Do we have, have we practiced this good practice so that we do not sin against each other even privately in our thoughts, privately in our hearts, and in the privacy of our rooms and private conversations? Second part of Leviticus, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love them as yourself. He is the Lord. This is the kind of God that we have. Therefore, this is the kind of behavior He expects of us. Ask yourself, church, is there someone I need to have a conversation with so that I can gather the facts? I can investigate more thoroughly and maybe let go of some conclusions that might not be true. Ask yourself, are there behaviors I need to, f- I need to further gather and examine facts about? Maybe there are conclusions I need to reevaluate. evaluate yung conclusion ko. Ask yourself, church, how can I be part of of building a spiritually accountable community for the Lord? Am I simply avoiding because I do not rock the boat but allow others to continue in sin? Or am I actually keeping to my own business because I am lazy and do not want to be part of the mess that is discipleship, that is discipline, that is preventive and corrective? Let the Lord examine our hearts. 
So as we continue our story, we will discover the resolution between the two tribes, the Western and the Eastern tribe. Let's read on from verse 30. The, when Phinehas, the priest and the chief of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst. Because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan. They returned to the people of Israel and brought back word to them. And their report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. In this certain narrative in Joshua 22, we learned that the Eastern and Western tribes experienced a unity in spirit. But it was not without mistake. The resolution had to take certain messiness. They had to take certain steps that they were uncomfortable doing. Do you think that the Western tribes wanted to kill their brothers? Probably not. As you can see here, they were relieved. They were relieved of the news. They were thankful. The report was good. You could almost imagine that the rest of the congregation sighed a sigh of relief, exhaled a deep breath. Ay, buti na lang. But it was not without mistake. The conflicts had to take new muscles, train new muscles of confrontation, of conversation, of understanding for them to learn how to live in unity. There had to be difficult communications and conversations to be had. But this resolution leads to a new intimacy between brothers. And more than that, it leads to a new unity in spirit. They both felt closer to God and they both felt that God was in their midst. They felt the presence of God because of the unity that they had of heart. How have we churched failed to experience the intimacy of God because of the assumptions that we've held across each other? How have we created a Jordan River wider than there should be because of the faulty conclusions that we've made about each other? So Christians, it is right for us to want to keep each other accountable and to cleanse each other from the sins and evil in each other's hearts. But there are a few tips from the Bible also, wise tips before we confront. Before we confront a brother, it says in Matthew 7, 3 to 5, we must examine ourselves. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This tells us that self-examination actually makes us better helpers. It makes us better ministers. It makes us better spiritual healers to others because we can see clearly without first our sin blocking our perspectives, tainting our conclusions, and making faulty interpretations because of our own pride or our own sins. Ask yourself, What sins might I have in my own life before I consider approaching another about theirs? Second step of before confrontation, guard yourself. In Galatians 6.1, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Whenever we are confronting another or correcting another, Galatians is telling us that there is a temptation to feel self-righteous. You will be tempted to not watch yourself and by neglecting yourself, you yourself sin while correcting some other person's sin. So it warns us of certain things. First, it tells you that it is the spiritual who should restore him. It means it's the person who is walking by the Spirit. It's not because he feels he's better than him. It's because he feels led by the Spirit. He is compelled by the Spirit. He is controlled by the Spirit to confront that brother about his transgression. It's not because of selfish desire. It's not because his clothing annoys me. That's why I want him to stop wearing that shirt. It's because the Spirit tells you to correct that person. How many of our confrontations are led by the Spirit and not by our own flesh, not by our own preferences? Second, we must keep watch on yourself even throughout the whole process. In the planning, in the confrontation itself, guard your heart. Baka nag-start ka na maganda motive mo, pero pag nandung ka na, umaatake ka na, intense ka na. Guard yourself lest you fall into temptation. Last, this is very important, which I think is something we all need to learn, including myself. What things should we confront others with? Lahat ba? Kotse niya, business niya, pera niya, asawa niya, sapatos niya, aso niya, dog food niya, tubig niya. Anong brand dapat ng tubig na iniinom? It says by Sharon Marshall, no, uh, it's an article on confronting sin. It says, reserve your confrontations for unrepentant sin that is a clear violation of God's word, brings harm to themselves and to others, and dishonors the Lord in a public way. But lovingly overlook their occasional failings with a spirit of grace and forgiveness. Hindi tayo pulis na lahat na lang ng mali. Mali, 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 mali. We overlook because love covers a multitude of sins. We are not here to per- make anyone perfect. Instead, we are here to free people from the slavery of sin. And sometimes they don't see that, that they have unrepentant blind spots. Reserve your bullets 
for the shots that need to be fired. Do not waste it on blanks. So, Joshua 22 teaches us a lot of relational wisdom. This is packed in the context of living as God's people in a new place, in a new land, with new rules. And how does this apply to us, church? You see, we've moved drastically to a new place. We've welcomed new people, new Christians, new believers, others who are looking for God here. And we will apply God's commands mistakenly. We will apply it differently, varyingly. And there will be a lot of miscommunication and assumptions going all around, given the size and the distance relationally of each one of us. I do not know the intent anymore of that leader, of that ministry, because we're getting bigger. We're getting wider. There's Jordan rivers of gaps in relational and physical distance. We need to learn the wisdom of Joshua 22, which God was telling us that even as God's people, Christians belonging to God, same community, same brothers and sisters, you will have misunderstandings. And in the process, you need to learn how to confront lovingly, how to confront patiently, how to confront gently, all being led by the Spirit while guarding ourselves from sin and also not being to the extreme Avoiding any confrontation just because we don't not rock, do not want to rock the boat. It's a balance of living into the kind of people we have to be. The people who confront sin, but the people who are also gentle, discerning, examining, investigating, and careful. A balance of both will be beautiful to see. It became, becomes a city of refuge. We hear out the cases of people properly before we decide their verdict. Why is it calling us to this? How does Christ portray this? As I close, I scan the memory of Christ and how he confronted the sins of others. I remember first the Samaritan woman. He knew her sin, but he did not bring up that sin immediately. He waited for her to come to the well. He did not jump to conclusions about her, but he was gentle, yet restorative. He was truthful, yet patient. He pushed for change, but he was not in a rush for change. He did it in a spirit of respect, dignity, that did not make the woman feel like she was naked in front of a policeman, but she was restored and healed. So much so that the, the woman had courage to face the community that she was hiding from after his confrontation. It healed her. It brought her back to intimacy with her people. It was restorative. The resolution, the conflict led to a redemptive and reconci reconciling restoration. Second, I remember Peter's betrayal. Our Lord predicted, he knew that Peter would betray him three times. At his worst time in life, his best friend betrays him. He predicted this. He knew this from the beginning. How did he confront Peter with this sin? 
Did he use emotion, reactivity, tampo? He was truthful. I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will betray me three times. He was gentle, yet he was truthful. He was confrontational, yet he was restorative. He was not condemnation. He was merciful. There was gentleness, there was grace, there was restoration. Imagine after he, he said that, he said, but Peter, when you have returned, strengthen your brothers. When you have removed the log out of your own eye, help the other brothers. So it restored to Peter a sense of purpose instead of a sense of uselessness and betrayal. Jesus is our Lord and Savior who confronts us with our sin but gives us grace to change, gives us grace and safety to get back up. He doesn't spank us until we can't get up. He spanks us so we are stronger, so we know of our sin and turn away from it. But He does it in a gentle and loving manner that restores us more fully to the person He wants us to be a healthy minister to the rest of the community so that when we return, we can strengthen our brothers as well. I pray that this truth in Joshua 22 and the kind of Christ that is revealed in Joshua 22 changes us as we deal with conflict and confrontation with God's people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your example of how you confront sin in gentleness and humility. You do not make us feel small in spite of your perfection. And yet you correct us gently but truthfully, sternly but patiently. Help us also, Lord, to be that kind of minister to each other, to keep each other accountable to the truth, to live by you devotionally and wholly. Make us holy, for you are holy. But Lord, in our learning to be holy and keep each other holy, we will make mistakes. We will confront and jump to conclusions again and again, even after today. And yet, may grace abound. May love cover a multitude of sins. When we are the offended, may we have grace to forgive. When we are the offender, may we have humility to ask for forgiveness. I'm sorry I jumped to conclusions. Give us this grace because your spirit desires to be a witness that shows that we are your disciples, imperfect as we are. We seek to follow your commands. We pray all these things as you bless us as your church to be a witness for your people here in South Triangle and beyond. In Christ's most precious name, we confidently pray. Amen. I pray that the word of, Lord, of the Lord richly bless you. Have a, a great Sunday.